All right, where were we yesterday? We were talking about the history of logical positivism and gotten to the point where we were talking about the Vienna Circle and the way in which the Vienna Circle was attempting to resolve some of these problems of Cartesian anxiety by this very strict effort to bound and demarcate what science was. The idea being that you, if you can get rid of all the nonsensical sentences that are metaphysical nonsense, then you could avoid Cartesian anxiety. So this is kind of the last round in this attempt to solve the Cartesian problem. Um, and not the last round that ever happened, but the last round that's important for us, because what goes on in the, uh, the sort of, what follows on from the Vienna Circle's attempt to do this is what leads us directly to contemporary philosophy of science, and in particular to the ways in which we think philosophically, or the philosophical thinking that went into the coding of the way the social sciences work, right? So this is our legacy that we're kind of talking about here today, which is why I end up putting this dude up here, because this is Sir Karl Popper, and uh, if nobody, people know nothing about the philosophy of science, um, they know that Popper exists and they know that there's such a thing as falsifiability and those are the sort of like you know bumper sticker terms that keep getting circulated around here now Popper as I'd mentioned yesterday starts out as basically a postdoc at the Vienna Circle uh, he's doing his PhD at the University of Vienna in psychology because late 19th, early 20th century, the differentiation between philosophy, psychology, and, and the philosophy of science, and these sort of things is all sort of mashed together still. It hasn't kind of differentiated itself out the way it does over the course of the 20th century. So Popper is kind of hanging around, listening to the folks in the uh, Vienna Circle uh, talk about their, their attempt to do this kind of linguistic solution. You can get rid of nonsense sentences by decoding them down into basic observational sentences and get rid of metaphysical nonsense that way and therefore produce a much brighter, more rational, more scientific future. And Popper always thought that this was not necessarily the best way to go, that there was a problem with this kind of verification procedure. And so what Popper does, starting in very early work of his, uh, including his 1934 book called The Logic of Scientific Discovery, Logic de Forschung, which isn't translated into English for about 30 years, uh, but it is the book that Popper first articulates this position in which he says, actually, verifiability is not what makes something scientific. What makes a sentence a scientific sentence is that it has the possibility of being falsified. So he inverts, turns over the positivist position, which again is about trying to ground certainty on absolutely central observational points, and says, no, 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 in fact, all knowledge is conjectural knowledge. So we should, in effect, give up the search for certainty, and instead we should be saying this is the root of the problem that Descartes had identified, and instead of trying to provide something else to stand in as certainty, the way that Descartes wanted to do, we would say, no, 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 instead all knowledge is actually just conjectural, and because all knowledge is conjectural and none of it is certain, that means you can make something scientific not by getting rid of its metaphysical nonsense, but by subjecting everything to continual empirical testing. Not in order to verify, but in order to see if the statement is incorrect. 
So instead of saying we can ground our sentences on these absolutely certain observations, we instead say what sort of observations are inconsistent with the claim, and then we go out and try to look for those. Sort of boldly going out to try to refute things becomes the epistemological agenda that Popper then ends up arguing. Right? So this is an attempt to solve ambiguities in the logical positivist position while still retaining a lot of the framing of the logical positivist position, because if you were able to do this falsification agenda that Popper had in mind, you would have just as secure a boundary between science and non-science as the ones that the positivists were looking for. You just draw the boundary in the opposite direction, as it were. Instead of saying these sentences are not scientific because they can't be verified, you would say these sentences are not scientific because they can't be falsified. But you still have a very firm and secure boundary line. And like the logical positivists with whom he was disagreeing, Popper retained this observability notion. Right? So they still had this idea that knowledge has to, has to emanate in observable sentences and observable data of some kind. So in that sense, he's actually, even though he talked about himself as the person who killed logical positivism, um, he sort of killed logical positivism like the way Oedipus killed his mother, right? It's like we're still really close together, and it's this very strange family drama um, where, you know, yes, I killed logical positivism by retaining, you know, 80% of what the logical positivists were doing, and I just made this minor modification. So he's still kind of in that same camp, as it were, which is something that one doesn't notice if the only philosopher of science one reads is Popper, or if one reads, as is common in um, PhD programs in the United States, you read the holy trinity of philosophy of science, the father, Karl Popper, the son, Thomas Kuhn, and then the Holy Spirit, Emery Lakatosh. And you read those three, and if that's all you read, you don't realize that it's this tiny tempest in a teacup among people who are basically fighting over the implications of logical positivism. And that does not actually exhaust the philosophy of science. But if you just read those people, then of course it looks like you're talking about this giant set of contrasts. They're actually very close together in a lot of ways. And that's important. Because even though Popper's kind of primary contribution here is, is to say, instead of getting rid of metaphysical statements, we should just turn them into testable hypotheses, in a way, it's very much the same kind of linguistic modification procedure as the logical positivists themselves were proclaiming. So it's just that instead of saying this sentence is, is not verifiable and therefore senseless, we say, let me tweak that sentence a little bit and turn it into something with observable implications, and now I can test it just like any other hypothesis. So statements about God, to use an example I was playing with yesterday, a Popperian would not say we rule that sentence out as nonsensical. A Popperian would say, we draw out the observable implications of there being a God, and we test and see if there's a God, just the same way that we test any other kind of hypothesis. Now, the problem with this Popperian account of science as being successively about falsification is that then if you actually look at the history of science, it doesn't seem to look like this Popperian story would lead us to believe. The history of science is not a linear story of conjectures and refutations. It is not a story of successive, let us pose things, let us subject them to testing, and then let us move on and create successively better and better kinds of knowledge. Uh, the history of science is very uneven. Falsification doesn't always drive changes. Claims that are made that appear to be falsified by evidence get held onto by different people and different research communities in strange, bumpy, and uneven ways 
And many of the things that we think of as now appropriate theories in science uh, are theories that start out falsified because they're actually not especially good accounts of the empirics. So new alternatives sometimes start out with lots of deficiencies that then have to be improved on by scientists working on them and so on. If we took Popper literally, then every bold new conjecture would probably be killed before it had a chance to fly because a bold new conjecture is not going to capture all of the data. You also get, as people who really looked at the history of science closely uh, were starting to sort of articulate around this period, um, you get things that are not really easily uh, shoehornable into that kind of falsification model. You get shifts not simply in uh, claims that line up with various pieces of empirical data, you get shifts in background assumptions. You get shifts in observational techniques. So when you have, to use the famous example here, when you have Galileo looking through his telescope at the moons orbiting Jupiter and using this as a way to, in Popper's terms, falsify a particular kind of Ptolemaic account of the universe where planets are all in their crystal spheres and so on and so forth, um, the argument that is handed back to him by officials in the Catholic Church is not, well, we have other evidence that supports our theory. The evidence that's handed back is your telescope is not a valid way of observing things. Because, you know, when God created humans, God created humans with eyes, and that's the only thing that's valid for looking at things. And, oh, by the way, the telescope that you're so fond of, when you use it to sight things terrestrially, the image that you see in the telescope is actually upside down, because they hadn't invented refracting mirrors yet. So if you looked at a telescope, you actually would see the image turned upside down. And so the church official said, yes, this clearly is evidence that the telescope is not a valid representation. Point is, they didn't attack the theory, and they didn't attack the claim, they attacked the observational technique. And somewhere along the line, the telescope was accepted as a perfectly reasonable way of observing things, and that criticism dropped out. Is that falsification? Not really, because nothing really got falsified there. We changed what we thought of as a valid way of gathering information that could be used to falsify things. So what this means, if you want to be a little sort of quippy about it, is that falsification is falsified by the history of science. That the history of scientific practice itself does not look like a linear story of successive conjectures and refutations. And this despite the fact that science seems to be pretty darn successful, particularly the natural sciences, particularly things like physics, which seems to work reasonably well. Even though the more you drill down on the history of particular accounts in physics, the more uneven and bumpy and irrational this process seems, rather than simply being the Popperian bold conjectures and refutations. This debate here, how you can reconcile the history of science with this notion that science progresses toward better understanding of the world, is the thing that drives the work of people like Thomas Kuhn and the whole notion of a paradigm. It drives the work of people like Imri Lakatos. It drives the work of all of these folks who are coming afterwards saying, how do you reconcile these two things together? Um, and if this were a much longer course, we could go off in a very long digression about exactly what that particular bubble looks like. But this is the puzzle that they're all trying to wrestle with. The point I want to make is the reason they're all wrestling with this puzzle is because they need to demonstrate that science is actually coming up with successively better ways of understanding the world because that's the only way they can solve that Cartesian anxiety problem, right? So this is still a manifestation of this same set of philosophical agendas, the same 
framing of the problem that we've been wrestling with all along. Now, what happens in the history of this is sort of fascinating because even though Popper's account had these problems, Popper managed to capture kind of the common sense of what a lot of practicing scientists think that they are doing, particularly natural scientists. So if a, if, if a natural scientist has read any philosophy of science, they've read a couple of out-of-context quotations from Popper because that's the thing that shows up, right? This notion, like, what we do is we go forth and we try to refute various conjectures, and that's how we produce knowledge of things. Um, you know, it's, 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 the sort of, it's the same sort of stuff that, that for the Open Society Foundation, that when George Soros is talking about Popper and notions of openness and conjectures, the same passages that they're all reading, um, it's those pieces of Popper, because Popper kind of picked up and, and thematized it in a way that a lot of natural scientists looked at and said, ooh, yeah, that, that's what we do. So it's the self-understanding of lots of natural scientists. This then migrates over or gets imported over into the social sciences during the middle part of the 20th century in particular. Uh, you have this whole, and it's an interesting notion, right? Because Popper and the logical positivists and all these folks are saying we've got successful sciences and we need to explain how they're successful. In the social sciences, the problem is inverted. It's we're not successful, but if we could do what they did, we'll be successful. So you know what, if this is how their, their science works, we're gonna try doing that over here and then we're gonna be real scientists too. So this is the kind of endeavor that you get, this strange vogue for Thomas Kuhn in the mid-1960s in, uh, in the English-speaking uh, social sciences, despite the fact that Kuhn, and parenthetically, if you haven't read your Kuhn in a while, remember the whole argument in Thomas Kuhn is science doesn't proceed by just falsification, science proceeds by these paradigm shifts. So we have these sets of assumptions that various researchers hold, and then there's a crisis, and then it changes to another set of assumptions. So it's a kind of discontinuous process rather than this linear thing that Popper kind of envisions. Um, and even though Kuhn says over and over in that book, this is not an account that is applicable to the social sciences. This is an account that is specifically about the history of the natural sciences. A lot of social scientists read right past that part and said, oh, cool, you know what we need? We need paradigms. So we need to start turning our work into this version of the sort of philosophical history of the sciences that we're getting from Kuhn, which I can imagine that Kuhn, when this is going on, I can imagine Kuhn sitting there going, really? Really? Because I said right in the book, you can't do this. This is not an instruction manual for how to be a science. But that was the way it was read in the social sciences quite a lot. Um, What's the thing that's very interesting, though, about this Popperian notion of falsification is that it actually doesn't require quantification. Like, you can be a Popperian falsificationist with statements that aren't quantitative at all, right? You can make sets of conjectures that are much more qualitative. There's no reason you have to quantify things. So where did this vogue for quantification come from? It comes from the people that Popper was arguing with it comes from the logical positivists, who, of course, were trying to make all their sentences as precise and operational as possible, and quickly realized that one of the ways to do that, the way that we did a lot in the natural sciences, was by using the techniques of mathematical quantification, because then you could make your sentences really precise. And so this idea that you should be making everything as precise as possible is something that gets retained in the folks who, at the same time, are importing the Popperian critique of the logical positivist project. So you see the strange irony of this. It's Popper plus the things Popper were arguing with, was arguing with. 
Popper is a singular person, so Popper was arguing. Um, so these together, right, this is this sort of commonsensical hybrid that starts to show up. And in particular, it starts to show up in the United States. And it starts to show up in the United States in large part because most of the members of the Vienna Circle, as I had mentioned yesterday, ended up in exile for one reason or another, either because they were social democrats or because they were Jewish or both. Things started to get very bad in the 1930s in Vienna, and so they left. And a number of them sort of went to Britain, but then they all ended up in the United States, uh, largely because that's sort of where the funding was for people to be able to get visas and get far away from the conflict and so on and so forth. So they end up, they pass through the new school and they end up in various places in US higher education. So Rudolf Carnap ends up in, uh, in Chicago, for instance, and Herbert Feigl ends up in, uh, in, in uh, Minnesota, and it's a very famous philosophy of science uh, series at the University of Minnesota. So you end up with a lot of these older logical positivists who are exiled, they're in the United States, and remember, these folks initially were part of this socially transformative public pedagogy agenda of creating a more rational society, right? That's what they were originally trying to do. They figured that this sort of work on science was like one piece of that. They get to the United States, and right after the war in the United States comes the rise of this incredibly virulent anti-communism. So what happens? These exiles end up downplaying the socially transformative parts of their agenda and upplaying the technical philosophical aspects. So all of the socially transformative project of logical positivism kind of drops out. And what you get is a set of technical operations in the philosophy of science. In fact, the very creation of the philosophy of science as a separate sub-discipline of philosophy comes out of this period because these folks realized, you know what, we're not gonna get very far trying to teach in the United States as foreigners and exiles anyway by saying society has to be radically transformed. That wasn't going very far with uh, folks in the United States. Because, of course, everybody in the United States thinks that the United States was founded basically by Jesus. And so it's entirely God's country. And why would we ever have to radically transform anything? Because we already are the, the you know, sitting on the city on the hill. We're already the promised land. So social transformation, eh, doesn't go so far. You know, why is there no socialism in America? Why is there no so in America. Also, why is there no social transformation in America? It's all the same question. Um, and it has the same root, which is theological, right? So the point is that you end up with these older positives in the United States who shrunk their agenda in various ways. They're teaching students about this stuff. Their students are less interested in the elimination of metaphysics to create a rational, just society, but they're really interested in the, manipula the logical manipulation techniques and linguistic precision that logical positivists are giving them. You know who else is really interested in this? All the people at the RAND Corporation and all these people who are doing government consulting work who are saying we need to have better ways of managing advanced industrialized economies. They didn't care about eliminating metaphysics, but they really did care about developing general systems models that would allow you to manipulate the economy and do things in various ways. So the weirdest of ironies, you get the students of the logical positivists using a Popperian formulation which is supposed to be a critique of logical positivism and the techniques from the logical positivists themselves working in basically industrial management. And that becomes the backdrop of now the commonsensical thing in the social sciences that gets mistakenly referred to as positivism and probably I think ought to be called neo-positivism because it isn't the original agenda, it's a descendant of that original agenda. If you had a class in graduate school where you were presented with, quote, the scientific method, unquote, 
you were almost certainly presented with this, this hybrid of logical positivism stripped of its social transformative agenda plus Popperian falsification with a, with a real method preference for quantification and precision. That's the blend that shows up as neopositivism. All right, having gotten there, neopositivism, you can see also why there's not a much of a, a desire among people who sort of believe this is how science works to spend a lot of time thinking about the philosophy of science. They think they've solved all those problems. All that's left is sort of these quantitative operationalizations and now we can sort of fix everything right there. We don't need to reopen that Pandora's box of conceptual and ontological issues. Um, so the fact that neopositivism rests on a set of philosophical assumptions is usually not remarked on. And I think it's important that we remark on it because everything else we're going to talk about this week departs from one or another critique of those philosophical assumptions. Not critiques of the method, but critiques of the methodology. Critiques of the logic of inquiry and logic of explanation that animates neopositivism. And one cannot understand that unless you sort of extract what those assumptions actually are. So there are two assumptions built into this entire neopositivist agenda or approach or methodology or whatever you want to call it. Agenda makes it sound like it's a nefarious plot. It's not necessarily a nefarious plot. That's just one way of cashing out knowledge. So neopositivists suggest, assume, that valid knowledge is a valid representation, a good representation of the world, a good depiction of what's going on in the world. Knowledge is representational. Knowledge, has to be, claims, knowledge claims have to be compared with the world in order to see whether they line up or not. Um, we then give that a particular Greek term to make it sound like it's much more important than it is. We call it a hypothesis or a hypothesis. Uh, the idea of comparing something to the world. There's a philosophical assumption there that the world has a character of its own that's out there someplace that we're trying to compare our conjecture to. At the same time, the other assumptions kind of built into neopositivism is the idea that the only things we can have valid knowledge of are things that we can observe, things we can measure, things we can sort of wrap our hands or our apparatuses around. Right? This is not a strict philosophically empiricist position because it's perfectly okay if you use various sensory augmentation devices to observe things, which is fortunate because as I look around the room here, good more than half of us have uh, sensory augmentation devices affixed to our faces. And if you were a strict empiricist, we'd have to doubt whether we had proper representations of the world given these sort of strange prosthetic devices that we have. Um, but neopositivists, no problem with this, right? Bounds of observation can change as you get new technologies that are gonna allow you to perceive things in different ways. That becomes a really important point in about 15 minutes, so hold on to that. Um, these are the two kinds of philosophical assumptions that, that neopositivism rests on. So hypothesis testing by testing the observable implications of your theory, especially observable implications that can be measured in some quantitative form, doesn't make any sense unless you have these two philosophical underpinnings, unless you think that's what knowledge is. If you do, yes, then the procedure of hypothesis testing, the procedure of looking for observable implications, and the procedure of operationalizing everything in ways that can be cashed out through observational data, like all of those things are wrapped up as part of this same package. Um, if you didn't have those assumptions, the, the, the imperative to do these things would not quite be the same. There are, therefore, what you might call wagers here. 
philosophical wagers. Wagers about the way that the knowing subject, the mind, is connected to the world of which we are generating knowledge. And I call them wagers rather than just claims or propositions because, and I'm just going to posit this, we'll come back to this a little later um, in the week, but probably on Friday I'll circle back to this. I'm calling them wagers because I don't think you can resolve these things. These are commitments that researchers make. These are philosophical commitments. They underpin the kind of practical work that we do. They are, in, to use a term that Axel Honneth likes a lot, world-disclosing assumptions. So they are ways in which, once we've made those sets of philosophical commitments, a certain pathway kind of opens up and, and appears to be the, the pathway to follow. What that means is that it's not like you can do empirical testing of these wagers. How would you test and see whether or not knowledge corresponds to the world? Well, you could say, I could do that by looking and seeing whether my knowledge corresponds to the world, except in order to do that procedure, I would have assumed that valid knowledge is knowledge that corresponds to the world, so I haven't tested my assumption. I've just enacted my assumption, right? How would I test and see whether all knowledge was about observational implications? Well, I could look for observational implications. Oh, wait, no, no, I've assumed the very thing I'm supposed to be testing at that point. The wagers come before any of the practical procedures. And I also call it this and talk about these in terms of wagers because these are not the only wagers that one could make. There are other kinds of wagers. And I think the more we look in the philosophy of science, the more we see that there are alternative wagers. So what I want to start with now, and this actually is where I should have started today if I hadn't lingered on the Wittgenstein house for so long yesterday, um, is to talk about, or talk for the rest of the week here, about what happens when you start relaxing or modifying those wagers and going off in different kinds of directions. And the first modification that I want to talk about here comes from a particular set of critique, critiques of neo-positivism. Some of those critiques, interestingly enough, are led by members of the Vienna Circle then in exile in the United States. So people like Carl Hempel, who is an arch-logical positivist who, if any social scientists only read one article by him, they read this 1942 piece called The Function of General Laws in History. Um, and it's interesting because the guy lives into the mid-60s and he keeps thinking. So his ideas in 1942 are not necessarily the same ideas that he ends up going to the grave with. Um, so he, he moves on from there. Uh, but that 1942 piece gets read quite a lot. Um, but Hempel, as his own career went on, started to develop sets of critiques of the Vienna Circle's own earlier work. So in a way, what I'm talking about here now, the sort of thing that we're moving toward, this alternative to neo-positivism, which I'm going to call realism, comes out of a set of critiques of logical positivism and Popperian falsification and neo-positivism, which are largely internal critiques by people who are trying to work in that tradition. They end up in a different place because of certain acknowledged limitations of the neo-positivist approach. One of the limitations that is quickly pointed to is that by remaining on the observable surface of things, all that neo-positivist approaches can get you are sets of observations about how things go together. You can't get anything deeper than that, right? All you know is that things went together and to form a particular pattern. In a sense, you don't really understand why they form that pattern. You just understand that they do, in fact, form that pattern. Say the same point in a slightly different way. Covariation between observable variable attributes, critics would argue, doesn't actually explain anything. It describes a set of connections. 
And the description of a set of connections doesn't give you any solid grounds for speculating that that association will persist into the future or that it might change in the future. Right? If you don't go further than just looking at covariation, the critics would say, there's no way for the neopositivist project to actually succeed because all you get is finer and finer grained descriptions of statistical covariation. You don't actually get to something called explanation. And I mentioned that Hempel is actually a figure who's sort of important in this. If you go back and read that 1942 piece, Function of General Laws in History, and if you read it closely, which almost nobody does anymore, then you see that even Hempel, back in 1942, was suggesting that noticing that things go together is not an explanation. What you need is some sort of a law that will help you to actually say that these things will continue to go together under certain kinds of circumstances. And you cannot get to a law simply by observing things, and you cannot get to a law simply by testing hypotheses and then eventually arriving at the correct one. You need something else. You need some other way of knowing that the law that you have proposed has some tether in reality. And not surprisingly, because remember, all these folks are really interested in the natural sciences as their, their main paradigm for how they think this works. Not surprisingly, what Hempel realizes and what Hempel comes to is that in order to know that a law is a good one, what you need is experimental results. In other words, you need something like a laboratory in order to know that the law that you've proposed is something other than simply capturing a statistical generalization, but that it's actually reproducible under ideal lab conditions. So when Hempel has his famous example about a radiator exploding on a cold night, um, he says, you know, if we want to explain how, why the radiator exploded on a cold night, you need to know certain things about the freezing point of water and the metal strength of the radiator and the fact that water expands when it freezes and so on and so forth. And you only know those things, according to Hempel, because you've done laboratory experiments in controlled environments and been able to figure out what the, here's the key word, mechanisms are that link together certain kinds of conditions and certain kinds of outcomes. So you've isolated these things in ways that are not simply reducible to statistical covering laws, and you use them to, wait for it, explain the statistical covering law. So instead of the neopositivist version of this, where explanation is the statistical covering law, the realist version says the statistical covering law is the thing to be explained. It is something you have to actually account for. It is not itself knowledge. It is a puzzle that needs to be explained. And again, this is the logical positivists themselves that are starting to come to this. There are certain tacit assumptions about the way the world is configured that also feed into this neopositivist approach. One of those tacit assumptions is that there actually are such things as constant, what Hume would have called constant conjunctions, or what we would now call well-verified cross-case covariations, uh, that these things actually happen in the world, or that the world is a closed system that you can take the world and treat it as if it were a place in which a true connection between two attributes would show itself up in a statistically significant way. It doesn't seem like a particularly odd assumption until you actually get into trying to do any serious statistical work and you realize all of the technical manipulation of real-world data that has to be done in order to get it to approximate that situation. Because real-world data is messy. And real-world data is not going to immediately show you sets of constant conjunctions and covariations. It takes a lot of work to get up to that point. 
If you're a neopositivist, you do that work because you think the only way you can tell whether something is causal is if you basically simulate that kind of thing in your statistics so you can actually see what the true connections are between these things. But what if the world actually isn't like that? What if instead of trying to transform the world into something like a quasi-lab, what if we took the world not as a closed system, but as an open system in which lots of different sort of confusing things are going on at the same time? Is there a way to read the real world and sort of talk about causality that way? This has some really profound conceptual implications in terms of this question that you will often see batted around about whether correlation and causation are the same thing. Because neopositivists will swear up, right, left, center, down, that correlation and causation aren't the same, that they're totally different from each other, except that they are in neopositivist land because neopositivists have nothing other than correlation to use when it comes to talking about causation. So, a good test of whether you're talking to a neopositivist is if they use a word like mechanism, but if you push on it operationally, what they really mean is intervening variable. If they mean finer and finer grained independent and dependent variable chains linking things together, then they're still neopositivists. They're just neopositivists on a slightly smaller scale because they're saying causation is correlation. That's the evidence that we have. If you are a neopositivist, causality is defined as being covariation. Causality is defined as being law-like generalization. Like, that's the way it works. Because again, philosophically speaking, neopositivists think knowledge is of observables, and what you observe is not the causal process. What you observe is the input and the output. You observe the law-like connection between things, between variables. And you test for that when you gather your data and run your statistics. Because people don't get the philosophical underpinnings of this, you will sometimes see the somewhat misleading characterization or caricaturization that says that if we make the statement probabilistic, we can get around this problem. I don't actually think that does get around the problem. Neopositivists have absolutely no problem with the notion of probability. It's just that it's absolutely certain that the probabilistic statement is true. So it is, not, it is the case that if the law in question is this happens 75% of the time, okay, testing is going to give you confidence that it's going to be true 75% of the time, your confidence is still absolute. Bayesians do weird things mathematically to try to get around this, but philosophically speaking, the idea is still that a cross-case generalization is the gold standard for what counts as causal knowledge in the neopositivist neo world. And if you don't see that kind of cross-case covariation, you don't know that there's causality. Now, realist critics, and even later positivist critics, would say, wait a minute, there's some real limitations to that notion of causality. I mean, if something only happened once, was it caused? In neopositivist land, the answer would be probably not, we don't have enough in. Okay, except we know that you know, once upon a time, a very large meteorite came and crashed into the planet and all the dinosaurs died. As far as we know, that event happened exactly n equals one time. So what are we supposed to do? Come up with comparative cases of asteroid strikes that eliminate large numbers of flora and fauna on planets and then run a statistical test about, mm, we can't do that, we only have n equals one. Um, astronomers start grappling with this. Okay, so we're looking at the universe, n equals one. Huh, how are we supposed to research that. In strict neopositivist terms, you would need alternative universes to be able to sort of do covariation co and see what would happen. No, you can't do that. You need different kinds of techniques. Within the social sciences, eventually you get this in what's called world systems theory. 
uh, where, uh, where Emmanuel Wallerstein says, well, so far as we know, we've only had one world system, um, at least for the last several thousand years, and so you have exactly one of them, and so we need to sort of find other ways of studying it because you can't compare it to anything. So if you want to have a notion of causality that can actually operate in a single case, you need something other than a strict neopositivist approach. As I mentioned before, real-world data is very precise, very, very imprecise, very, very ambiguous, and so all of these statistical techniques are designed to clean it up and make it possible to do these kinds of cross-case covariation hypothesis tests. But, as critics would say, why are we going through all this trouble? Maybe there's another way we can do this. Right? Because these techniques of cleaning things up make certain presumptions about what causality looks like, that causality always looks like a nomothetic generalization. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe there's another way to think about causality. And in particular in the social sciences, one of the main impetuses for trying to think this through is that if you are correct is this with sort of operating with these strict neopositivist assumptions, you would end up with sets of nomothetic generalizations which would not be amenable to transformation. You couldn't change them. They would simply be natural facts in the environment, and that would be all you could do with them. Now, a number of people, let's call them Marxists, were particularly interested in the idea of full social system transformation by the agency of various historical actors. But neopositivism doesn't have an awful lot of room for that because you've got these invariant generalizations and nobody can change them. So how do you transform a system if the system is composed of causal relationships that exist outside of the bounds of anyone's agential control or impact? The answers to some of these things start to show up in sort of the, the language that we now have in the late 1960s, early 1970s. This is a person you don't recognize, unless you've seen this lecture before. Uh, this is Rom Herre, and Rom was was, he died recently, unfortunately. Um, Rahm was a student of John Austin's. John Austin was a philosopher of language, philosopher of knowledge uh, at Oxford. And the uh, folks at Oxford, the professors at Oxford, did a really good job pretending that nobody at Cambridge existed. So they would say, Ludwig who? Wittgen what? We don't know who that is. Now, I know from having asked Rom this question that what they used to do is the grad students would like hop on a bus or a train and they'd go hang out at Cambridge and like listen to Wittgenstein and everything he was saying and they'd kind of bring it back and then they'd bring it in. Austin and all these guys knew exactly what was going on over at Cambridge. So they're all engaging with these same kind of Wittgensteinian notions. Um, it's just they weren't acknowledging that, right? So there's like, oh no, we're doing something entirely different over here in our ordinary language philosophy, which has nothing to do with Wittgenstein's approach to language games, even though they're kind of indistinguishable in a lot of ways. Um, but Rom comes out of this particular tradition, and the idea that Rom and, uh, and a co-author Secord uh, first voiced in this article was published, I think, in 1971, maybe 1972. Um, this article on what they called causal powers. And their argument was, if you actually looked at how real sciences work without these sets of neo-positivist lenses on for how we understand how science is supposed to work, and we actually look at what real scientists do, what real scientists do, they said, is not simply gather a bunch of data and isolate nomothetic generalizations. Instead, what scientists do is produce artificially constrained environments, laboratories, in which they set up deliberately artificial experiments to elicit the causal powers of actually existing objects. 
And what's the importance of that particular semantic shift? Once you say that causality is not about the law-like generalization, but about the power or proclivity or disposition that produces it, you then open up the possibility of saying, and those causal powers may not always produce a law-like generalization. Whether they do or do not depends on the environment, depends on the circumstances. Think about the implication for a second. Therefore, collecting open system, real world data is probably not the best way to go about finding causal processes. Maybe what you need is artificial laboratory environments where you can elicit the causal powers of objects, and then you assume that those causal powers, because they're real properties of the object, continue when you take the object outside of the laboratory. So the really simple example that he uses is a magnet. If I have a magnet, and I have a bunch of iron filings, and I put the magnet down in the iron filings and pick up the magnet, what is now going to happen? Right? All the iron filings are going to connect to the magnet because they get attracted to it. Right? So we know it's a magnet because it did this. If I'm a neopositivist, I know it's a magnet because I'm able to repeat this over and over again, and I see correlation between magnet and filing sticking to it. Now what happens if I take that same magnet and my iron filings, and now I put a nice piece of metal here, and I put the magnet on this side? What happens to the iron filings? Answer, absolutely nothing. So what happened? Is the magnet not a magnet anymore? No, the magnet's still a magnet. It's just that there's something else in the open system of the real world that is interfering with the magnetic field. So the magnetism of the magnet is not its observable connection to things. The magnetism of the magnet is its capacity to manifest magnetism under certain conditions. And you isolate those conditions in a laboratory. This is how it works when you're sort of developing sets of drugs, right? You're putting something together saying, what are the effects of this going to be? You do it in a lab environment, it works in a controlled system. Great. Then you assume, because it's the same drug, that it's going to have those effects out in the real world, but the real world's messy. So once you take these things outside, those same kinds of causal connections are not going to manifest as law-like generalizations necessarily. You're going to end up with things that are a lot messier. So how do you know you're not just making stuff up? You know you're not just making stuff up because in the artificial environment, you've been able to isolate the causal capacity. I keep coming back to the lab because that's absolutely essential to this kind of realist way of thinking. That causality is something that we find in objects. We have to produce those effects. We have to induce those effects in various ways. So if neopositivism tends toward the side of observation of law-like generalizations, Realism would say, no, no, actual causality is about the manipulation of objects and being able to get them to do certain things under certain circumstances. And some of those objects might be people. And some of those labs might be psychological labs. And you might put people in psychological labs and run various experiments about how they react to certain kinds of information stimuli, or whether or not it is the case that if you have people prompted in particular ways to frame issues that they become more or less uh, uh, supportive of repressive police tactics, to pick a not-so-random example, um, then you can say, look, humans have a certain psychological proclivity to do these things, and we've been able to isolate it in the lab, and now we assume it's still going to work in the world. Is every human going to work that way? No, because other things are going to end up interfering with those causal powers. So it's a very different way of thinking about how you induce, how you find causation. It's a way of moving beyond the empirical. 
in the terms I was utilizing in the, um, in, in, when I was talking about the sort of assumptions of, of neopositivism, it is a way of moving beyond the kind of observational or phenomenal uh, connection that neopositivists think that we have to the world, that we are observing things that can actually be sort of seen tangibly. They would argue, no, the world's actually composed of other stuff too. It's composed of these deeper causal powers. Perception is not exhaustive if you are a realist. Science doesn't simply work by viewing things. Science works by giving us knowledge of deeper powers that things have, potentials that things have, which are not reducible to their empirical manifestations. Now, the concept of an unobservable is way too imprecise, so what I want to leave you with here today is a little bit of a breakdown of what realists mean by unobservable. Um, because there are at least three different things that you could say are unobservable, and only one of them is what you need realism for. So, Unobservable might mean stuff that you as a person have not seen or experienced. Unobservable might mean something that no human being or none of us have ever actually seen or experienced. And then unobservable might mean things nobody could ever directly experience, even in principle as a matter of theory. It's only that third one that you need to be a realist for. And the realist critique of neopositivism is not just there's stuff that goes on in the world that we haven't seen yet. It's there's stuff that goes on in the world that's real that you can't ever possibly perceive. So what does that look like if we sort of run that out in practice? So, you know, let's put up a chart because I like charts. Um, if there's stuff that I haven't observed, like I'm not really sure that Angkor Wat exists because I've never seen it. I've seen pictures, but like, you know, Photoshop, they could have been fake. I've never seen it. It's something I personally have not seen, but how do I resolve things I haven't personally seen? I just go and see them. There's no special problem there. I just go and look at it, right? I don't need to be a realist to do that top line. I don't need to be a realist to use the second line here. So before the planet Neptune was directly seen, the existence of the planet Neptune was induced by various uh, mathematical calculations where people looked at the sort of disturbances in the orbit of other planets. And they said, you know, there must be some other mass out there that's distorting these things in this way. So they kind of plotted what the trajectory was and said, this is basically, there's got to be a planet out there somewhere. Eventually, they invented powerful enough telescopes to allow us to see it. It is literally impossible for a human being to see the planet Neptune with the unaided eye. You can't. The light is too faint. But if you have a telescope, it's now a perfectly ordinary observable object. You can just sort of go ahead and look. If I'm given this lecture 10 years ago, the Higgs boson is an unobserved thing that's a theoretical posit. Now, the Higgs boson is detected and detectable because we built large detecting machines and we figured out that the Higgs boson actually exists. So now it's just a standard, unobservable object. Well, standard in the way that any subatomic particle is standard, which is to say really weird. But like they will actually say it's part of the bestiary, right? It's actually there, something we know actually exists. So you can build a detector for that. You don't need to be a realist for that. You have to be a realist for stuff on this third row. You have to be a realist for things that the theory itself tells you can't ever possibly be detected. Things like single quarks. You know anything about quantum mechanics? Quarks only ever appear in triplets. And therefore, you can't possibly see just one of them. It's just not possible. You can't do it. The theory says you can't. Higher dimensions, right? Superstring theory tells us that the universe may be actually made up of 11 dimensions, most of which are so tightly coiled that you can't possibly have access to them. Okay, cool. It means the theory says we can't actually see them. How do we know they're real? You know, there are ways that you be a realist about it and say these are unobservable, but they have sort of manifestations. Why does this relate to us in the social sciences? Because you can't drop social structure on your foot. But we all think it's real. 
So maybe in order to say that there's such a thing as social structure and it does something, the argument goes, maybe we have to be realists about it. Maybe we need to say there are real but unobservable in principle components of the world. And we need to think about techniques of how we might study those, which would then take us beyond neo-positivist search for cross-case covariation. And tomorrow I will briefly talk about how realists think we should do that before turning to the rest of the panoply of different ways in which one could cash out these different sorts of wagers.